0: Um, let's get going on our study tonight. This is our sixth lesson in this little book of Ruth. And I know it's four chapters long. I, honestly, we, should, we, we should, could have done this in four weeks. It's not, it wouldn't be hard either. But I, I, tonight's going to be an example of why I don't like to do it that way, why I like to take my time. Because there are moments in these stories that, that they speak to context, they speak to time, they speak to place, but they speak bigger than that. They speak to us as Christians. This isn't our story. This is a Jewish story from 500 years before Christ, set even farther back than that. Um, This is a story speaking to a Jewish audience in an era where they don't accept Moabites, where they've, they've got a policy of sending Moabite women and their children back to Moab and breaking up families. And they're doing it in the name of Torah. Ezra and Nehemiah are leading the charge of splitting up these, of about 450 years before Christ. And somebody somewhere slides the little letter of Ruth into the consciousness of the world of that day. And it was so powerful that it got put into the collection of all of these Jewish stories, stuff that gets dropped out, stuff that we've never even heard of because we're Christians living 2,500 years later. But this story made it. And it, it by all accounts, it shouldn't have made it. Like it was kind of subversive to what was going on at the time it's almost a protest piece it's it's not overtly prophetic in like god speaks and says i'm going to do this and you know it's not exodus it's not let my people go it's not the creation account it's kind of a love story we're going to get into that tonight it is a love story but not primarily but it's kind of a love story but it's a It's a story about responsibility. It's a, it's a story about taking care of the stranger. It's a, it's a story that runs, it it swims upstream when, when, when the, when the flow of everyone's feelings are going one direction, Ruth's going the other way. And I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed it survived in its world and I'm amazed that we still talk about it. But every now and then we get into spots in this book where you got to step outside of Ruth and, and see the Jesus that is looming in this book. He's there. He's, he's standing somewhere in the shadows. And if, if you can go off to the New Testament once in a while and, and find him, well, then that's even better because we're not Jewish. So we're not Jewish reading old Jewish literature. We're Christians. We follow Jesus. So when we see our Jesus, we don't just put that on the shelf and go, let's study as if we're Jews. We're not. We're followers of Christ. So when we see Jesus, let's talk about Jesus. Where might he be? in this story. So in case my subtitle, the man will not rest seems odd to you. All of that talk about Jesus ought to tell you who the man is in this, because it sounds like if you've read the book of Ruth, the man is Boaz and it is. But for tonight, the man is more than Boaz. The man is Boaz and the man is Jesus. And uh, he doesn't rest until he does everything he needs to do. And that's going to teach us how to rest. It's going to teach us how to lean on him as our as as a, the source of our strength and find peace in a chaotic world. And if the book of Ruth is doing anything, it's hopefully to give voice to the voiceless and to find a little peace in a chaotic world of its day. Up until the moment that we will read, and we're going to begin reading in the third chapter in just a second, um, not going to recount the entire story, but I do want to remind you that when we left last, Ruth had dressed up, put on her best garment put on her best perfume and went to Boaz's house, tent, residence, wherever he's staying. And she lays at his feet. And in effect, she's offering herself to Boaz for all of the things that that may or may not mean. What we know happens in the story is that somewhere in the middle of the night, he wakes up and notices there's someone lying at his feet. And he has this, we have this confrontation here probably a wrong word, but we have a conversation between Boaz and Ruth. And what transpires is going to lead us. This is where we ended last week. It, it is Boaz essentially saying to Ruth, uh, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going I'm to take on your case. I'm going to be your kinsman redeemer. But if there is somebody closer than me, so he's going to end up being the guy that gets the first chance to be your redeemer. If he doesn't, I will take care of it, but leave it to me. I'll be the one who solves this issue. And so the the book of Ruth takes an interesting turn to where she's now about to be linked. This Moabite, this girl is about to be linked to the people of God through marriage. And in the Jewish world, there's no greater link than that. That is a marriage that's uh, reflective of their relationship with God. Um, There's a little moment right before that, and I didn't get to this last week, and this is just a little freebie and I don't have it In the scripture, I don't have it on the screen for you, but there's a little moment where when, when Ruth gets to Boaz's residence and Boaz realizes who she is, she says to him, All that you say to me, I will do. And there is a replay of that in John's gospel when John has Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the wedding of Cana say to the men in charge of the party, whatever he says to you, do it. And we don't have any other words by Mary in the Bible. The last thing Mary says is at the wedding of Cana, whatever he says to you, do it. The greatest piece of advice you'll ever receive in life, in my opinion, is whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And I find it interesting that Ruth uses that language on Boaz, whatever you say to me, I'll do. And then Mary uses that language about Jesus. So put them together. You're being told whatever he tells you, do it. Your response should be whatever you say to me that I will do. Or to put it succinctly, he says to you, whatever I say to you, do it. And you say, amen. You seal it with, I'm in agreement with that. Whatever you say to me is what I'm going to do. And this is the destiny of every child of God is to live in accordance with what Jesus said in the word and subsequently what Jesus says through the word to them. And so if you're hearing him and it lines up with the Jesus you see in the word, do it. And the longer you wait around getting everybody else's advice is steps you aren't taking that you could be taking. You're going to end up doing what he told you to do. You do it because he told you to do it. And we get all, we get the start of that in this little letter of Ruth. Let me actually read though a couple verses from chapter three, verse 13 and 14. Boaz says this to Ruth stay tonight and in the morning it shall be that if He will perform the duty of a close relative to you. This is the, the man who is closer to you by bloodline than me. There is a man that's closer than Boaz to Ruth. If he will perform the duty of a close relative, I think the old King James says of a kinsman, good, then let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and she arose Before one could recognize another. And he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Stay tonight has a twofold meaning. Um, Number one, you're a Moabitess. It's dangerous out there. You don't know the roads. You don't know the people. They don't know you. It's probably not good to be on this side of town at night. But that's more than being on that side of town at night. That's a Moabitess woman doesn't belong in the land of Judah. And if... I I always try to to, to keep pushing you back, pushing gently, because I don't want to shove it on you, but I want you to remember the whole Ezra and Nehemiah story. I want you to never forget where Ruth maybe is coming from. Why does this story exist? So all these little nuances in the story... Are maybe messages outside going, it ain't safe for people that don't look like us, is it? It ain't safe for people to run around that don't agree with us, is it? Now, he doesn't ask the question explicitly, but maybe implicitly. By having Boaz say to Ruth, stay here tonight, it's not safe for you to go out. That would have been a message for everyone reading are we the ones who are making it uncomfortable for the stranger or for the outcast or for the person who doesn't share our faith or share our values? Let us be sure that they feel safe in our environment instead of that they feel threatened, condemned, outcast, put upon, put, set aside. And so for Boaz to say this to Ruth is one thing for the writer to say this to the world is another thing. And that's how we have to read the Bible. It isn't simply Boaz talking to Ruth. It's the author talking to us. It's the author talking to Judah, to Israel, to the people of God. Is it a safe environment for them to walk home at night around us? Would it be safe if this Moabitus walked through your neighborhood? Would it be safe if they entered into your place of worship? Would it be safe if you encountered them on the street? And not just you individually, but us as the, as the people of God. And so part of stay tonight is don't go out because it's not a safe place to go. Wait until, wait until the sun is about to come up when you've got just enough light to walk, but not enough light to be recognized. There's a statement there in verse 14. She lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. That does not mean she arose before Boaz could recognize Ruth. That wouldn't even make sense. We've been Boaz and Ruth been talking the whole chapter. What it means is go out before anyone can really recognize who they're meeting on the street. You need just enough light to get home, but not enough light to be a Moabitess. Catch that. What's that say? It ain't safe for Moabites. And it ain't safe for you if you can't see to walk. So go in that very thin space between just safe enough to see the road and just safe enough to not be recognized and get home quickly. And Boaz doesn't take on the responsibility of walking her home like a chivalrous man. He doesn't put upon himself to take care of her in the midst of this because this is a message to Israel and Judah. It's your job to take care of the Moabites in your neighborhood. That God doesn't walk alongside of them and hold their hand all the way home. He's expecting his people to take care of them on their way home. If you can read it through that lens, you can see why Boaz stays back. And also, stay here tonight is an unofficial marriage proposal in that world. Stay here tonight is his way of saying, you stay here all night long. You're, you're saying that this is the place you want to sleep. And the place that you want to sleep is in the place that you want to sleep the next night and the next night and the next night. It's another way of saying, not only do I offer, whatever you say to me, I will do, but I accept your invitation to stay here is the acceptance of marriage, which leads us to, this is very, this is kind of clinical, isn't it? I mean, Boaz was like, there's somebody closer to you than me. If he'll redeem you, good stuff. If not, I'll do it. And we go, we, we really want Boaz to be much more romantic than this. Like we want Boaz to say there's a closer kinsman, but let's don't tell him about you because I'm in love with you and our destiny is to be together. We we want Hollywood to come into this story. And if we were putting this on the screen, we would change the kinsman redeemer part because we can't have Boaz not willingly marrying Ruth. We can't have Boaz taking Ruth if the other guy doesn't want you. If the other guy doesn't want you, I'll take you. And so I've kind of wrestled with this too. Cause I, I'm like you, I bring my own understanding of, of Western story into the narrative. And so I'm going, eh, this would have been a lot more romantic if Boaz would have been aggressive and I love you. And you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I don't want anybody else to marry you. Please, marry me. If he'd have just went after Ruth and, and the way we, the way we preach Ruth and Boaz, you would think this is the ultimate love story. Like Ruth goes and finds her Boaz and there's nobody else, but there's one man on the earth for her and she found him. But it is a little more clinical than that, but not in a cold way. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Ruth is not primarily a love story. I'll admit it might be secondarily, maybe even tertiary. It's not the primary point. I think the primary point is don't kick Moabites out of the land, but it's not even a love story per se. It's really a story about duty responsibility, and that leads to love. You see, Boaz sees redemption as his duty, even though Ruth is a Moabitess. Keep that in mind before I go any further. Boaz sees it as his duty, even though she's not Jewish. She's not a Hebrew. He knows that the family of Elimelech has been cut off from the earth. Naomi's still alive with no one to provide for her. Her husband's dead and her two sons are dead. And she brought this girl back that's a Moabitess and that disqualifies the girl from any rights. But Boaz doesn't think that's fair. Why should Naomi suffer? Because her son married a Moabitess. If if this girl was treated as if she mattered, then someone would bring the law of kinsman redemption up And she would be the inheritor of whatever was in her family, even though she's always a Moabitess. Her bloodline doesn't deserve it. Her heritage doesn't deserve it. But Boaz believes that she's worth it, even though she's a Moabitess. This very move would have been highly controversial. What duty does the Israelite have to the foreigner and to the stranger? I should have put a question mark there because it's a question. What duty? What do they owe a Moabite? What do they owe a foreigner? What do they owe a stranger? Well, if you've read Torah and we've glanced at least in this study, we do know that they're supposed to take care of the foreigner. We do know that the stranger is supposed to matter. There's obviously love, but his insistence that a closer kinsman exists, is his way of involving his brethren, inviting them to treat the stranger with respect as well. So I wrestled this over and went, why does this feel so clinical? And my answer that I see is this, if the story was just Boaz fell in love with her, that's not a subversive text. They would have just threw the story aside and went, well, Boaz is like the rest of you. He shouldn't have done it. So she should have been kicked out and the rest of you Moabitess women ought to be kicked out but by injunctioning, by invoking kinsman redemption, a system designed to provide and pass inheritance and by Boaz stepping out of the way voluntarily so that someone else could step in to redeem, forces everyone in town, or at least one guy in town to have to make a decision and spoiler alert, we won't teach this tonight, but spoiler alert, when you get to the fourth chapter and Boaz brings the kinsman relative up, he says, Elimelech is dead. Malon and Chilion are dead, and there's nobody to take their inheritance. Will you redeem it? And the man says, I'm your man. And quickly, Boaz says, the day you do, you must take Ruth the Moabite." <laughs> And Boaz throws the whole wording in there. He doesn't just say Ruth. He doesn't just say you must take her dead. He must just take his widow. No, he says you must take Ruth the Moabitess. And the man goes, I can't do that. And that's the arrow in the story. That's the arrow in the story that goes, see? Everything, all of your noble ideas fall apart. The moment that somebody undeserving gets equal rights with those who are deserving. And once again, Moab Ruth becomes a really tough piece of literature. It gets harder and harder to chew now, the deeper you get in. So that's a spoiler alert. That's coming up. That's what we'll find out about that kinsman. But in this moment, I don't want you to think of it as a love story as much as The author of this doesn't want you to think romance. The author of this is dealing with a people who are using Torah to kick out Moabites. So the author does the same to keep them in. If you just use a love story, that's not enough. Not for a crowd that wants to see text. And so he uses text. He uses kinsman redemption. Ruth chapter 3 verse 15. Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and he laid it on her, and then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother in law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? She's been gone all night, Naomi, making sure it's her. And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me because he said to me, Do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law let's deal with before we do make just, just quick synopsis. I'm not going to send you away with nothing. Here's enough barley. This is going to last them. This is going to last over a week. This might last longer. So he loads her up and she's worked all day. She's already received goodness. She's already received profit. This is on top. This is icing. This is favor. This is grace. This is, uh, if the first part of the book of Ruth is, God will bless you with handfuls on purpose, but you still got to go to the field and pick them up. That's a fact. Then the second half of Ruth is, but don't discount that God wants to pour way more on you than you're able to pick up, All right. God reserves the right to bless you unfairly. And, and I like to remind you that God reserves the right to bless you beyond your worth, to bless you beyond your threshold of reception, that you're going to have to take your shawl off and take in the goodness of God, he reserves that right. And it's a Moabitess. This is another shot across the bow. This is someone having getting more grace than they deserve, more favor than, you know what this is? This is Jubilee. This is the day of Jubilee. This is debt's gone. I'm about to take you upon your name into my name and I'm gonna give you more than your worth. And we've never, we love Jubilee. We love Jubilee, as long as it's qualified people that get Jubilee. If you qualify for Jubilee, we think Jubilee's great. We love to pre- Jubilee was the day. Just in case you don't know this, or that you're, you don't know, Jubilee was the day in Old Testament where on the fiftieth year everything went back to its original owner and all debts were canceled. It was almost the day of anti-capitalism. I mean, I don't know any of it's the actual opposite of our entire financial system. And it happened once every 50 years. And Israel was pumped about Juba. We don't know if it ever actually happened. We don't ever actually have it happening because I think it was even a little too heady for them. I think even they would get to the 50th year and go, are you really going to do this? I don't know. We don't have a record of it. But the the fun part about it is when Jesus reads Luke 4 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to recover his sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised. This day, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The phrase acceptable day of the Lord is jubilee. That's what Jesus said. I'm here to declare jubilee. Today, it's fulfilled in your ears. And everybody was all excited. And then Jesus, sensing how excited they were that it was their jubilee, said to them, were there not enough widows in the land of Israel that Elijah would go to the widow at Zarephath? That's a Gentile. Were there not enough lepers in the land of Judah that God would heal Naaman, a Syrian? And the Bible says, and all of them picked up stones to kill Jesus. Go, Whoa, that was a quick turn. Like they were really excited about Jubilee until he told them who Jubilee was for. And he said, Jubilee's here. But the way my dad does Jubilee is he'll go find a widow outside of Israel. He'll go find a leper outside of Judah if he wants to. If he wants to. My dad gets to give Jubilee out willy-nilly. It's dad's Jubilee. He doesn't make people qualify. He just decide. And Boaz is given six ephahs of meal grain to a Moabitess woman who doesn't deserve any of it. And this is a shot saying Jubilee has come to Elimelech's house and it's coming through the conduit of the wrong person, the wrong bloodline, the wrong inheritance. And I'm going to do it anyway, because I want to, because I can because I'm a good God. That's pretty big. Do not go empty handed. I'm gonna borrow some Robert Alter. He says it way better than I can. This is from the Hebrew Bible, translation and commentary by the great Jewish scholar, Robert Alter. In regards to the phrase, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. The book of Ruth is all about the transition from emptiness to fullness from famine to abundance, from bereavement and childlessness to marriage and children. Naomi has told the women of the town, I went out full and empty did the Lord bring me back. You'll recall that was chapter one, verse 21. And now the same Hebrew word, rekah, appears in Ruth's report of Boaz's speech to her. Notice this. It appears in Ruth's report of Boaz's speech to her. Ruth remembers Naomi saying, I went out full, but I came back empty. So when Ruth tells her mother-in-law where she got the big old basket full of grain, she uses her mother-in-law's words that she heard her use and uses the same word, I went out full and empty, did the Lord bring me back? That's the word Ruth uses. Don't go empty handed to your mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law has made the statement. She came back empty. She's going to be empty no more. That's what Ruth is giving back to Naomi. Remember when you said, it's kind of like this. Remember when you said, well, this guy said, and she uses the same Hebrew word, which is cool because the reader would have thought she doesn't know Hebrew. You're right. She doesn't. She's using words she hears Hebrew people using on her. And she heard her mother-in-law use that word for empty. And she heard Boaz use that word for empty. And she throws it right back to her mother-in-law. The fullness of the shawl bearing the barley is a hint of the fullness of the offspring that Ruth will enjoy and also bring to Naomi. So the device in the narration is to set you up for a greater fullness, which is sort of a way of saying as good as God is to you now, it it indicates just how good God can still be, just how good God wants to be moving forward. And so the next verse or the final verse of chapter three is this. She said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. But you did take a, just soak that baby in for a minute from the 18th verse. This is Naomi talking to Ruth. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Our title tonight was The Man Will Not Rest. We've done a lot of work getting to this. This is really the end. And I wanted to end on Jesus because... I told you from the top, the man's going to be Christ. The new Testament really embraces this as the man, the old Testament, of course, is only hoping for their Messiah. They don't have it as Jesus. We only see Jesus here because we've met Jesus. Okay. We only see Jesus here because we've met him. We know what he looks like. Here's how I like to say that. I I like to think of it this way. I'm always telling you, go look for Jesus in the old Testament. Go, how do I find him? Because you know what he looks like, right? You've encountered him on the road to your Damascus. You've encountered him in your prayer time. This is why I told you a few weeks ago can you be sure? You can if you spend time with God because you'll know what he sounds like. You'll know what he looks like. So when he walks in the room, you won't miss him. Like you'll feel it. Like I, I believe if we watch for it, there's like thin spaces in the world. Like that's, that's the place where there's a real blur between the line of the secular and the sacred. There's a real blur between the line of the invisible and the visible. You feel it, like you know it. Sometimes it's in your prayer closet, sometimes it's in sanctuary. Sometimes it's walking into a cathedral and you go, ooh, it kinda takes your breath away for a second. It's not just because the ceiling's way up there, but because there's a lot of prayer happened in this room. It's like, a this is a different this is a different space. I'm not in a club, <laughs> like I'm not in an amusement park. I'm, I'm somewhere real close to that. You get used to being in that, you get used to what he sounds like, you get used to what he smells like. And I know I'm being, I hope you understand I'm being allegorical. It's not a matter of getting your nose and your ears and your, it's a matter of the, the other sense out of your heart. Once you do that, then you start to notice him in the text. You know why Boaz looks like Jesus to us? Because Jesus stepped into our field in the middle of our loss and dropped handfuls on purpose for us when we didn't deserve it. We watched him do it and we picked him up. And then he calls us into conversation with him. And he opens up our baskets and he puts in a big old load of blessing and favor and we don't deserve it. And he goes, you rest and I'm gonna go take care of this. And we recognize Jesus there because we recognize Jesus getting on the boat with his disciples and sailing across the sea and falling asleep. And we recognize that he does the work. Well, the New Testament loves it and explodes with it. And our great John that we journeyed with for years, John telling the story of Jesus, throwing in all these little nuggets and tidbits along the way that nobody else threw in. One of my favorite of those is this little moment when Pontius Pilate in John 19, 5, Jesus comes out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate says to the crowd, behold the man. And for Pilate, it's just an announcement. Behold the man. You think maybe he's the son of God? Maybe you don't. What makes you people mad is that some say he's the king of the Jews. I don't know. I wash my hands of it. Behold the man, here he is. Same chapter, John 25 verses later has the the man hanging on a cross. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The man finished the job. And only when he finished does he bow his head and give up his spirit. Because in giving up your spirit, you're dead. Jesus said, my life is not yours to take. My life is mine to give. No other human gets to say that, by the way. None of us get to say, my life is, a, uh, I, I don't go until I let go. Well, good luck with that, because that doesn't always get to happen that way. Jesus did. Jesus says, my life is not yours to take my life is mine to give. When I let go of it, it'll go. And when does he let go? He doesn't let go when they're beating him. He doesn't let go when they mock him. He doesn't let go in the crown of thorns. He doesn't let go when he's thirsty. He doesn't let go when, they, when the other criminal cuts him down. He doesn't let go until die in the Greek. It is finished. Perfect tense. It is finished now. It is finished forever. It ever shall be finished. Whatever he was dying for then, he has died for now. It is what he has died for in the future. All sin that had ever been committed, that was being committed, that ever would be committed, all of it squeezed into one moment and the man finished the work and let go of his spirit. He wouldn't let go until he finished the work. Paul would call him, 1 Timothy 2, 9, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, it's the man, Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't use that anywhere else. But in this moment, Paul has the man is a new man. A new man, this is a new Adam. Men work and they survive by the sweat of their brow. But the one who can mediate between the rest of us Adams is a new Adam, the man, Christ Jesus, because he's the only man that truly finished the work. And because he's the only man that truly finished the work, he's the only man that can mediate between the rest of us out here working, the rest of us out here scraping, the rest of us out here trying and and hoping, the man has finished that job. And when he finished, what does he do? Hebrews 4.10, He who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works in the way that God ceased from his. So if you're going to enter his rest, the only way to get there is to cease from your works because the only reason God's able to rest is because God's already finished the work. So when Naomi says to Ruth, relax, the man will not rest until he has finished the work. I say to you, relax. Jesus did not finish. Jesus did not die until he finished the work. Jesus finished the work for you so that he could rest, so that you could rest. And this is what rest looks like. We enter rest through faithful obedience to his promises. Please don't miss that line. You don't enter into rest by going, oh, I'm just going to rest. I don't do anything this is what rest looks like no some a lot of times that's sleeping in jonah's boat that's going the wrong way because you're just too lazy to figure out the right way and so you just go well whatever happens happens you know praise god god's got it all under control and then you just go and just get smacked around who cares because well i'm the righteousness of god in christ well good luck with that because that's not that's not entering rest because we're entering rest is Faithful obedience to the promise of God. You know what the next verse is in that Hebrews 4 run? It tells them that the word of God is sharp and quick, more powerful than two-edged sword, pierces his sunder, soul and spirit, divides the joints and marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Why does he throw that in? Because if you're going to enter into his rest, you're going to do it at the end of hearing his word. And what is his word? The whole third and fourth chapter was, there's a land of promise. Do you want it? There's a land of promise. Do you believe I can give it to you? And if you believe it, you can have it. And how did you get into the land of promise? You faithfully followed God there. He led you out of Egypt and he said, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And as you do that, that's faithful obedience. What, what did Eugene Peterson call it? Um, faithfulness was long obedience in the same direction. That's pretty good. It's long obedience in the same direction. It's The only way we enter into that rest, Ruth did the same thing. She trusted Boaz would keep his word. Now, if Ruth failed to trust that Boaz would keep his word, then she would have gleaned in another field or she might have looked to marry another man. The arm of the flesh is what takes us out of the place of rest. It would have been very easy for Ruth to do. She wakes up the next day and goes, you know, this is lazy sitting around waiting on him. I'll just go work one more field. What's the big deal? It's just one more field. And we do this a lot because we think activity equals blessing or favor rest is not inactivity rest is holy spirit directed activity and holy spirit directed activity sometimes says wait watch Mm -hmm. sit still listen pay attention be ready to move when it's time to move the arm of the flesh is what takes us out of the place of rest my example of jesus is i used it a second ago let's go to the other side and then he gets in a boat and he goes to (laughs) sleep and the failure to trust that they would make it to the other side is what causes his disciples to freak out they get halfway across the sea of galilee a storm comes up and they all lose their minds they come wake Jesus up. And when He wakes up, He says, you have little faith. Why did He say you have little faith? Because I only gave you one thing to do. Just go to the other side. It's right there. It's not that far. Let's just go right over there. Can we do that? You guys know how to sail? Yeah, we got it. Alright, let's go right over there. They wake Him up. They go, don't you care that we perish in the waves? He goes, I only gave you one thing to do. And freak out wasn't one of the things. <laughs> and how many of us freak out? In the midst of the thing, when he gave us the one thing to do was trust me. So hats off to Ruth, who does exactly what she's told to do. Because the story, next week, we're going to leave three. We go into four. And the story leaves Ruth. And it leaves Ruth for the first time since we met her, early in the story. And it follows Boaz. And Boaz steps into the spotlight for the final scene. Well, there's one more really good scene. That's for another week, but. The man will not rest until he has complete, concluded the matter. Christ Jesus is our mediator. He has finished the work. He has rested his case about you. You can rest in him. And wherever the, work, the works that you're involved in are not finished and there are things to be done, listen, do what Ruth told Boaz she would do, whatever you tell me to do. I would do it. That's a good piece of advice. And it's that same advice that Mary gives. Let's pray over this. And let me pray for those watching who's struggling and you're anxious and you're not resting. And I don't just mean you're not sleeping, but you may not be sleeping because sometimes when anxiety hits your spirit, man, your physical man is affected as well. I've had a lot of rest robbed because my spirit wasn't at rest. missed a lot of physical sleep because my spirit man was running a hamster wheel. Just just couldn't figure out how we were going to make this work. And so maybe that's you, and, and you need to learn to take a real rest. Where does it start? Whatever he says to you, do it. Trust that he will keep his word. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He isn't going to change his mind. Believe that. Father, we thank you, you are good. We thank you for this word and I thank you for this beautiful story. The impact on me this week has been to stop with the primary look at a love story and start to see it as a story of duty, not because you dutifully love us, but because you were laying a story in front of your people to see if they would do their duty and their duty was to love their neighbor as themselves. It was to care for the poor, the widow, and the stranger. Would they do it, given the opportunity? And I don't know if they passed. But I know that, Father, the question is in front of us as well. But also tonight, Lord, the thing that has been probably the, the most important thing in my life has been learning to do whatever you tell me to do. I don't do it every time. But to learn to do whatever you tell me to do has been the source of any great thing I've done. And any area in which I'm at rest in my spirit has been because I'm faithfully obedient to what you've told me to do. And every area where I'm not is because there's an arm of the flesh that is raised up. I pray for every viewer, every listener who is struggling to come to a place of rest in their spirit. It's affecting their mind, their body, their life. These things are like dominoes. It's residually moving out and affecting their marriage and their job and their money and their relationships, maybe even their health. But, Father, I I believe that the man Christ Jesus mediates on our behalf, and all he asks us to do is trust him. Teach us what that trust looks like, and teach us to do whatever it is he tells us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Amen.